Welcome to the Fran Park Center for Faith and Life's Out of the Park podcast series. I'm Wes Avram, the director of the Fran Park Center for Faith and Life and pastor at Pinnacle Presbyterian Church in Scottsdale. We are uh, thrilled to have Dr. Kyle Jensen with us, an active participant in uh, life and education at Pinnacle and recently a teacher in the Park Center, a Sunday morning series on communication and conflict. Uh, Kyle Jensen is a professor of English and director of the writing programs uh, at uh, Arizona State University. He has a Ph.D. from Illinois State University, an M.A. from Western Washington University, a B.A. from Whitworth University, and he taught at the University of North Texas. But most of all, he is a scholar, a thinker, a liver of, uh, of rhetoric. He lives... Uh, a life of research in how we communicate and how communicate shapes communication shapes relationships and culture and how we can think about perfecting our work of communication. He is the husband of one spouse, the father of three girls, and the child of one God, which is a way of saying that his faith fills his work, and we hope we can talk a little bit about that today. But Kyle, welcome to the Outer Park series. We're glad to have you here and uh, honored. You are a professor of rhetoric. I'm going to talk a a little bit about what that means. I think in common parlance, many people think of rhetoric as uh, how we use language to persuade or manipulate or market. We think of rhetoric as public relations. We think of rhetoric as uh, tools, instrumental tools to help other people do what we want them to do. But you seem to study rhetoric differently. You seem to study rhetoric as the context in which we create relationship, as ways of listening, as ways of uh, creating understanding or inhibiting understanding. Tell us a little bit about what it means for you to be a scholar of rhetoric. Well, I think we probably have really good reason to think about rhetoric in terms of manipulation or in terms of like win-loss scenarios. I mean, that's the way that rhetoric is primarily marketed in our culture. Every time I teach a class to undergraduates on the first day, we always go around and I invite them to say why they've decided to take this particular course because taking an advanced course in rhetoric is kind of a peculiar decision for an 18, 19, 20-year-old. And sometimes it's because it's part of their sequence. They got kind of excited by a rhetoric course when they were sophomores or juniors and they're kind of completing their degree. But more often than not, they'll say things like, well, I really want to learn how to win an argument. I really want to know the tools to get my point across. I really want to know, um, you know, how to be successful in persuading other people uh, to think the way that I do. And I think those are all fine goals. You know, I think any time we engage in communication, we want other people to affirm the value of our perspectives. I think it's gratifying to win arguments, especially if we believe or persuade ourselves to believe that the person with whom we're interacting uh, is a threat to us and those with whom we love. Um, I'm not so sure. I'm always I'm a little bit more suspicious about people who say they want to manipulate, you know, toward a particular kind of outcome. So maybe, you know, this is probably not the best field for you, but... Um, I say pretty consistently that we study rhetoric because we need to understand how we can appropriately measure our lives. Words are things that we do every minute of every day. Um, when we, if we, if you were to ask or to interact with somebody and say, "Where did you learn to talk? Where did you learn to argue? Where did you?" 
very few people would say, well, I was trained, you know, from elementary to middle to high school, all the way up through college to study argument, to think about how they work and effectively or not, and to seek better outcomes in light of the limits and possibilities of the words we use. More often than not, we argue maybe the way that our parents argued, or we argue the way that we think is most beneficial in light of the kind of cultural imperatives that we encounter on a day-to-day basis. And Oftentimes what that what happens is that it leads to this kind of view of argument as a zero sum game. It's either you win and I lose or I win and you lose. And that kind of intractability is why we need to study argument in the first place because if we go into any kind of communicative situation where there's only one winner and there's only one loser, that kind of intractability means that probably aggression or violence or at the very least resentment will follow. And so I study rhetoric because I want to create outcomes in my life and in my world that don't result in intractability and resentment and aggression and violence. I think part of the reason why I gravitated to rhetoric originally, and I actually didn't even study it until like formally until I was a PhD student, which is, you know, something I tell my students all the time, like, see, you can pick this up uh, eventually. Um, was that it? there was a, a really nice symmetry between what I understood to be my responsibilities as a believer and the kind of ethical imperatives that characterize the use of words to producing outcomes that encourage and build people up and grant them hearings and seek understanding and peace and justice and so on. Um, I was a believer long before I ever studied rhetoric. So um, I guess, you know, what 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 is rhetoric? What would I define it as? We study how words move people, move people and bodies, whatever, to action. And we try to evaluate the implications of those actions once words have kind of done that study work. Rhetoric can also be a tool of peace and not just a... I think so. I mean, I, I think that um, it ought to be. And that's the, the the legacy. There, there's a very famous image that characterized the outcomes sought by classical rhetoricians. There's a closed fist and an open hand. The close, the implication of the closed fist being that this is a weapon that you can use toward aggressively, you know, moving toward an outcome. Whereas the open hand of rhetoric says. I'm open to possibilities. I'm going to advance something peacefully and seek a peaceful outcome. Um, so yeah, I think rhetoric ought to be oriented toward peace. Although one of the things that I tell my students really consistently is that you can use tools affiliated with rhetoric to produce outcomes that run against our better judgment. So it's not as if rhetoric as a study is unassailable we can talk about like we can talk about the rhetorics of peace in the same sense as we talk about the re- the rhetorics of dictatorship so the goal at all times is to measure how words produce effects in the world and to determine whether or not those effects are in alignment with our values your use of the word measure reminds me of a essay by the french philosopher in the 1930s and theologian, person of faith, Jewish thinker, profoundly influenced and fascinated with Christianity, Simone Weil, wrote an essay in the 30s called The Power of Words, in which she uses the image of Don Quixote attacking windmills. She talks about the rhetoric of the day, of the moment, where is of people swinging at windmills, uh, the zero-sum game, right, the battle, and 
and uh, talks about the fundamental loss of measure in our use of words, of the ability to say, to qualify what we say, to say insofar as or in as much as, to say to the extent that, rather than saying it is, it, you know, that rather than moving our language to absolutes, that we move our language to possibilities and therefore leave ourselves open to learning as well as speaking and persuading. You have, I've heard you quote before uh, Toni Morrison's yeah. acceptance speech from her Nobel Prize. There's a passage in that that inspires you. Yeah, it's, she says, we die, that may be the meaning of life, but we do words, that may be the measure of it. So I, I've read a number of Toni Morrison novels and have taught them as well. My favorite, if it can be called a favorite, I mean, you kind of, wins to think about it as a favorite given the content of it um, is Beloved which is a story about a haunting you know it becomes a kind of parable of what happens when we do not come to terms with the violence that's associated with enslaving people on the basis of the color of their skin of assuming that they're less than human to ignoring the measures that they go to in order to protect their children unto the point of death because the possibility of continuing to live in slavery is worse than being killed by their own family members and what it means to mourn that loss what it means to come to terms with it and learn to forgive and forgive oneself it, it's a beautiful book. It's a book that when people ask me, what should I be reading? I think that that's probably the book that everybody should have read. Um, and it's really hard. I mean, it's emotionally very difficult. It's a beautifully written book. The narrative is very compelling, but if you're paying attention, the gravity of that. So, you know, in those moments when, we're, when I'm teaching students this book it, it's not just simply a matter of how do we learn how to read Toni Morrison it's how do we listen to the the burden of testimony that we're asked to take on here how do we learn how to listen to ourselves the kind of language that we use in any given moment that authorizes or exhibits indifference to the suffering of others um, how do we measure our attachment to certain kinds of cultural logics that sanction violence and so if we learn to listen to ourselves breathe, we learn to pay attention to the words that we use, the idea is that hopefully, you know, we learn to do things a little bit differently, to do, do them a little bit better. When we were teaching this, when I was teaching this class at the Fran, Fran Park Center, I said that I, when I was an undergraduate, I had to take a water aerobics class. I, this is a, a laughable to anybody who knows me because I played college basketball and part of our uh, liberal arts education was we needed to take a class that asked us to learn how to take care of ourselves and be healthy. It's like I've been playing, you know, basketball for four and a half hours a day for the last four years. And turns out I, it was actually, they were wise because I didn't know how to take care of myself and I wasn't being forced to, to do that with a little man screaming at me with a whistle. But um, in that class, I was, it was the last semester before I graduated, and a bunch of athletes had to take it. And I was in class with a swimmer, and I, he would sit down, and I would watch him prepare himself consciously for the water aerobics activities. And he would sit there and quite literally breathe differently. Like he was forcing himself to take deeper breaths in and to relax his body so that when he was in the water, he was able to perform at a level that he was accustomed to. 
I remember thinking at, at that point, like, this is a really nice lesson for any of us that we're so busy kind of going throughout our day, catching up with the rhythms of being a dad or a, a husband or a, a professor or a writer or whatever the case may be, um, that we don't actually pause and think about how slowing and assessing the way that we are speaking or writing or using words um, will actually cause us to do so in a much more measured and deliberative way. Let me ask a question from that about silence. Yeah. Then I think so often, because when you were talking about Beloved, I was remembering Maya Angelou's I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings and the role of silence in response to trauma and how often in so many ways we we think about silence as response to hyperviolence or trauma or intractability or injustice signaled by a silence, silenced voices. We have a way, however imperfect, of, think, of linking silence to the tragic or, or the violent. Um, I wonder about the silence of glory as well, linking silence to insight or silence to preparation for hope. There's even the resurrection. There's, there's silence around the crucifixion, but the resurrection of Christ for people of faith was not the kind of boisterous shouted event. It happened in a whisper. You know, the, the encounter in the garden between Jesus and Mary is so profound in that it's just a gentle word, almost textured by silence, because not only are there moments of tragedy or moments of horror in life that we can't find words for, there is also ineffability in glory as well. How do we find our way between these two things for which there are no words as creatures of language? It's a really complicated question. I'm glad we only have a couple, five minutes left. Uh, I had a, a really wonderful professor in graduate school who studied the relationship between rhetoric and trauma. And she had a very pithy way of explaining what was at stake in our course. She said, trauma traumatizes rhetoric. And what she meant by that is that the overwhelming quality of any mass violence, whether that be the Holocaust, American slavery, whatever it is, if you pay attention to its effects, the consequences that that trauma produces, to engage in a kind of superficiality, superficial usage of words is to perpetuate the trauma further. Robert Lifton talks about it in terms of false witnessing and narrative fetishization, that we become so attached to our ability to narrate things that we quite literally do more harm than good because we're trying to fit it into an order that it by definition resists. The banality of evil? Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. And so in the in the examples that you describe, I, I've talked about this in different con contexts. You know, if if you read the Bible carefully and you look for the encounters that humans have, not just with God, but like just like something a little less than God, like an angel, it like people just flat down, catatonic, they're done. Like they don't have a choice not to be silent because the possibility of encountering this ineffable thing is so overwhelming that all one can do is 
be silent and to listen and say, I'll just do whatever you want. Just please don't hurt me type of thing. It's a, it's an, a, a kind of pure survival mode. That's a different kind of quality than I think like, so, so there's, there's like forced silence. Like we undergo something that is so radically outside the paradigm of our symbol systems that we can't do anything but be quiet. In this particular class that you know we taught recently, one of the things that I've tried to show the people who attended is that um, there's a relationship between wisdom and listening that's pretty clearly articulated in the Bible. There are plenty of injunctions to be quick to listen, you know, to paraphrase James. We also know we need to be still and know. Um, we are called to... Um, you know, seek peace and seek re reconciliation. I don't know about you, but as a word person, that's something that I need to watch myself breathing in because I can become over-reliant on the use of words and in the process of doing so, erode the trust of the people with whom I'm engaging. See, the thing about the zero-sum game is it's very easy to kind of say, oh, there's an I win, uh, I'm going to win and you're going to lose type of scenario that frames most of our argumentative engagements and I'm not going to do that anymore. But that fundamentally undershoots the mark of the complexity of the problem that we're facing because the history and the lineage and our attachment to those kinds of argumentative forms is so complicated that it's not like a switch that you suddenly become aware of and like, oh, I'm turning the lights off on this now. So silence can be a very powerful tool. What I would say is that it becomes an exercise in suspending your instinct or your inclination to engage in certain kinds of arguments or argumentative forms long enough to hear, to grant a hearing to a perspective that is different than your own. Um, and that, that suspension is just really, it's, it's something that has to be consciously practiced over time. Could the suspension also be a suspension to recognize a complexity that exceeds our ability Absolutely. to understand? I think of Bonhoeffer, who wrote that, you know, before he died, you know, the theologian um, Im imprisoned um, in Germany, who wrote, at the end of this war, we'll need, the church must be silent. Yeah. Not because it will never speak, but, that, but sp spoke of silence as a chastening, yeah. so that language can be truthful again. Um, too many words demean the truth of language right? yeah I think that's right and you know, we were just talking with Mike about you know he's I've, I've given him a reading assignment he's reading some Kenneth Burke and he said the thing that has struck me the most is his use of this metaphor of rituals as ruts where you're driving along you're going through Oklahoma let's say which is a place you want to be passing through of course I apologize to any Oklahoma native Oklahomans out there but uh you're, you're passing through and in the process of doing that you're basically taking a path that has led to a certain kind of security because if people hadn't already taken that path there would be no rut to begin with but then you can become so kind of stuck in that rut that the possibility of moving left or right out of necessity to preserve your own life becomes an impossible thing because you know you're going to tip over at any given moment by virtue of being stuck there. So I think that it's helpful, you know, riffing off of what you're saying about Bonhoeffer, to, to remember that 
we all, and this is the part of the measurement that we were talking about earlier, we all have these habits of narration, these habits of argument, these habits of speaking and framing and ordering the world that for the most part are like secure paths, but they can also be leading us to the edge of a cliff. And in Bonhoeffer's case, like there, how does one come to terms with the systematic eradication, the conscious and systematic eradication of an entire population? There is no narrative order for that. There is no trope that's going to help us reconcile. There is no you know, framework where we say, oh, that makes sense now. There needs to be a kind of suspension where we say we, we don't know. We, we don't have the words for this. We don't know how to come to terms. It's time to bear witness. It's time to give the people who need to give testimony a hearing. And one, and the, maybe the best that we can do is discuss the parameters by which we can ensure we are being ethical or responsible as witnesses to that testimony, but not to impose an order on that because the only people I think in that situation who have the right to speak are those who endured it. Um, but that's a really, really hard thing to do because in good faith, in good, in, 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 in with, with full hearts, we want to rescue, we want to help. We want to like, those are not bad motives. Um, there's a phrase that I have borrowed. I, it has a much longer history than whom I'm going to reference here, but I borrowed it from a, a Slovenian philosopher, Slavoj Žižek, who says very frequently, this is the right move in the wrong direction. Um, we can, in all earnest kindness, you know, care, make the right move in the wrong direction. And if that's not received in the way that we expect it to be, we can sometimes feel hurt or resentful. Like, don't you understand that my motives were in the right place? And that's why effects really need to carry the day. That's why I'm interested in the effects of rhetoric, because we can intentionally move toward a particular outcome, but produce the exact opposite effect. And it's our responsibility to be, uh, to seek forgiveness in light of the effects that we've produced. One of my um, teachers was a, now deceased as a Jesuit priest and philosopher, social thinker named Ivan Illich. And toward the end of his life, Illich said at one point, all we are left with today is to gather with friends and say no. And I've, I've puzzled over that for a long time because I'm thinking that's not just a negation. There's a positive move there. One, the gathering. Two, the shaping of friendship three, the speaking, and fourth, the refusal. <laughs> right? and, and I don't know if that's hopeless or hopeful. I think it's hopeful, but hopeful in the midst of an intractable situation when rhetoric is um, not universally possible, the rhetoric you describe, but is possible in situations where we can still make a difference or, or is, or is that too hopeless? No, I, I like the turn of phrase. I think, you know, my own version of it would be just to say, not to say no, but to just say maybe not yet. I'm, I'm 40. What do I know? I mean, we're living in an absolutely unprecedented time. If you told me three years ago when we moved to Arizona 
that we were going to deal with a once in a lifetime pandemic. Uh, we, I guess we could say we hope it's a once in a lifetime. It's certainly been once in you know a century or so. I would have said I, you know, I don't know how that is going to radically alter the way that I see the world or what kinds of argumentative problems are going to emerge. And I can say provisionally, these are my inclinations. This is the kind of thing that I, but I also want to hold, um, hold the terms up for scrutiny long enough so that I don't become stuck in my own kind of rut. Um, a person that I study, Kenneth Burke, I mentioned him earlier, has this wonderful line in A Rhetoric of Motives, which is a book that I write about, where he's trying to address, like, at what point does rhetoric, like, move into deception? And he says, as I'm paraphrasing here, but rhetoric is on the edge of cunning when it doesn't use terms that are incisive enough to critique its own position. So I won't speak for your mentor, but I will say that if I say no, that forecloses possibilities. And so that's why for me it's a not yet. I want to say maybe not at this time given what I know, but I also want to use terms that are temporally contingent so that I can circle back on them and reevaluate in light of what I discover. You know, what I know about parenting is intimately tied to the fact that my daughters are nine and seven. Now they people tell me all the time like when they become teenagers and I was like, wait, can't you just let me be happy for a little while? Like they think I'm great and they go, Oh, just you wait. It's like, we don't, we don't need to walk down that road just yet. Like I'm not trying to, you know, you don't need to crash this party, but I think that that's been true. Like we, and I talk about my, my daughters pretty consistently when I teach because the thing that I knew about, you know, God's sovereignty was different than before I interacted with a toddler who was, you know, clutching a little, you know, rubber duck and saying (laughs) no to me in the bathtub. You know, at that moment she was simply trying to protect something. And it was a moment where God was speaking to me and saying like, this is kind of how you are all the time with me. You get that, right? You're the, the level of vulnerability, you saying no. So, it, it's not to not to correct or introduce any kind of correction because I would need a but it, it's a matter of saying just habitually I try as best as I'm able to use terms that are contingent enough that allow me to make sure that I'm not making the right move in the wrong direction. Well, the great thing about pithy statements is that they're never sufficient. <laughs> they're, they're, they they yeah. always invite the yes and, right? Yeah, I think which, that's true. Which leads to a, a good conclusion question, which could be another hour's conversation. Uh, which is the question of faith in this? You are a person of faith mm-hmm. as a believer. In your sense of what we're talking about today, what is urgent about this? About for, listening. About listening. Yeah. About thinking critical, about self-reflection, about how we use language, about rhetoric, as you're talking about for a believer today, for the church. That's a really good question, and it could take an hour. You're right. I'm, I'm going to try and be pithy so that our audience can say yes and, <laughs> yes or, and. or maybe just no. <laughs> I just We just got done doing a workshop, and in the process of talking through some of the people's, some of our, you know, our friends' questions about how to apply listening, I said that listening is really difficult work. And only you can choose to listen. I mean, there's a certain amount of agency that we all enjoy to say, 
my inclination is to shut this down, but instead I'm going to choose to do something altogether different. And in making that choice, we accomplish two things simultaneously. We perform a willingness that can act as a kind of testimony. So that's kind of what I call the content of the form. Like we, we engage in behaviors that communicate to other people that we are willing to be present with them. And then another formal outcome of that choice is that we suspend disbelief long enough to allow ourselves to be surprised to hear the other person, but maybe to hear ourselves think or respond differently than we might otherwise have been inclined. I mean, I, I don't think that, the, that there's no kind of path-breaking quality to this observation that we are becoming increasingly intractable, and there are a lot of reasons why that intractability is occurring. Um, I guess what I would simply say is that you know, it's it's the responsibility of every believer to kind of go to God and to pray and to entertain the possibility that how one speaks and how one listens ought to be recalibrated. I have a lot of conversations with Christians who sound very uh, pharisaic, for lack of a better term, maybe puritanical might be a better adjective, um, that they believe that their duty is to impose a moral standard and to judge whether or not a person is meeting that moral standard. And in those moments, I kind of just cling to the words of Jesus. Like this, this is, this is death. This is a whitewashed tomb. Like you have the prettiest tomb on the block, but you're still dead. And it's, it's, it's extremely difficult to entertain the possibility that someone whom we might otherwise just silence or move to the margins of the conversation might have something to teach us that in, that requires something of us mm. um, it requires a level of scrutiny and a level of attention and a kind of courage and vulnerability that I, I don't think we like I, that's not something that I wake up thinking like I want to be those things today at least not consciously so I'm mostly just trying to make it through the day and like like have my kids be happy with me and, you know, do my job well and particularly well. So we're not called to be caught up in the rhythms of this world. I mean, that, that, that that's an imperative statement in the Bible. We're called to look heavenward. We are called to live a different life. We are here. Yes, we're going to live this life, but we are not called to be storing up treasures on this earth. And I think oftentimes when we are doing we, when we aren't doing the difficult work of listening, we're storing up treasures on this earth because we're only hearing the arguments that we want to be hearing. And that's gratifying. But, you know, like eating a pan of brownies is gratifying. That doesn't necessarily make it healthy. You caused me to think about God's incarnation in Jesus differently. And that I think we're, we're taught to think that's how God speaks. But perhaps... It's also how God listens. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, we, we routinely ask God to incline his ear to our prayer. We take umbrage in the fact that he chooses to do so. I mean, he, he, you've been doing this a lot longer than me, so, you know, 
but have are, is there is there anything more different to God than a human perspective? <laughs> yeah, I like to think that there's the distance between all of us and God is much farther than the distance between you and I, despite any of our differences. Exactly. And so if we think and that God inclines God's ear toward us. Yeah, that, that like <laughs> that's the model, right? That the God of perspective, the God that stands outside time, the God that removes our sins as far as the east is from the west, the God that we take solace in, the God that we trust is so powerful that any kind of to refer back to earlier in in the podcast um that any kind of like even superficial encounter just renders us you know face down trembling for our lives is the god that meets us where we are inclines his ear to our cries who comforts us to provide solace who places a yoke you know, asks us to be disciplined, but it's light and it's gracious and it's forgiving. And it understands that I can do this over and over and over and over again and trust the fact that that Christ's accomplishment on the cross covers it. The debt's paid. I mean, like, that's the point. And so if we're called to be, if we're called to follow Christ, we're called to try and be as like, as much like him as we can be. It seems to me like listening is a really important first step to suspending our instinct to cling to judgment or cling to our morality and say instead, like, are we really paying attention to our own limits in those moments? Because I, 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 I've spent a lot of time thinking about um, the woman who is about to be stoned, you know, for her sexual transgressions, and Jesus kneels down and writes in the sand and says, where are your accusers? They're gone. In that moment, I think that maybe we ought to really think about what it would mean to draw a line in the sand and what what line we're going to be standing on in that moment because that's a line of grace. That's a line of understanding. That's not a line of no accountability. You know, Jesus doesn't say, all right, we're good go do the thing some more and then come back to me when you're feeling sorry about it. But I think everybody kind of comes to that, that, that the gravity of that moment when they realize that they ought to be kneeling, they, they are kneeling down right alongside her. And that his message for her is his message for them as well. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Thank you. Thank you. For more information, check out our website at www.framparkcenter.org.